You are watching The Jacobin Show. I'm your host, Jen Pan. Of course, we're here every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern. So thanks for tuning in. Good to see you. Uh, On today's show, I will be speaking to the one and only Crystal Ball, who you, of course, know as the co-host of Breaking Points with Sagar and Jetty uh, and Crystal Kyle and Friends. We're going to be talking to her in just a little bit about... um, sort of the ongoing problem of working class alienation, why so many working people are disconnecting and dropping out of the political process and potentially what we can do to turn that around. Uh, I myself will be making some brief comments about um, some new polling that has come out that shows that uh, basically everybody in America is feeling pessimistic about the economy, despite the fact that the economy is doing really well on paper. So I want to look at what might explain that disconnect. Um, Think of this as a sort of part two to my segment from last week, if you tuned in for that. Uh, But for right now, I actually want to go ahead and bring out our first guest, David Broder. He's going to be talking to us a little bit about the ongoing situation in Ukraine. Uh, David is Jacobin's Europe editor. He's been writing and commissioning um, all kinds of great articles for Jacobin on what's happening in not just in Ukraine, but in Russia as well. Uh, So David, good to see you. Hi, thanks for having me on. So I want to start with a question just about, I think, the broader context of the Russian invasion. Um, Obviously, Putin's invasion of Ukraine is an act of Russian aggression. And, you know, I think we on the left should and for the most part do oppose it. But it also seems like uh, since the since the invasion began, the, I guess, liberal interventionist foreign policy machine has kind of been going into overdrive. And what I mean by that is we now see, uh, you know, Basically, every political leader and commentator, uh, in uh, centrist, centrist commentator, sort of trying to cast any and all criticism of NATO as nothing more than pro-Putin propaganda. So I think the question for you, just to start, is how do we understand the Ukraine invasion um, in a larger geopolitical context, but obviously without making excuses for Putin? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is very important to emphasize that Um, There's simply no excusing or justifying or providing uh, excuses for um, Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine, Um, even insofar as the, um, you know, the, the, the Russian state can sort of complain that its own preferred uh, sphere of influence is, is, is somehow being, uh, or, or has been uh, interfered with in the sense that it's uh, um, in the sense that there's been calls for Ukraine to be involved in in NATO or so on, and in that limited sense, one could point to to Western hypocrisy in the sense that you know the U.S. Uh, has its uh, own. Um, claim to be a world policeman and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, from the perspective of socialists and the left, there's nothing to be said in defence of the idea of spheres of influence. Um, so I think, and of course, the the human impact of the war is absolutely appalling, as mm-hmm. are the specific military crimes like the bombing of the maternity hospital in Mariupol. I mean, I think the problem is that um, at a certain, you know, if we're talking about the immediate triggers for the invasion then i think uh you you can't really um chalk that up to to some sort of western provocation or something i, mm-hmm. I don't buy that i mean i in a, in a very general and abstract sense i mean of course um there's something of a a contest and uh opposition we're seeing in in sort of mainstream media now between sort of liberal internationalists um, who basically do want to use this conflict, use the Russian invasion to call for a sort of reinvigorated West, uh, to call for more military spending, a strengthening of NATO, and this kind of thing. And then the currently sort of more defeated side, who are like conservative um, imperial realists like John Mearsheimer, who basically uh, call for a kind of understanding of 
Russia's defense concerns and this kind of thing, uh, and their position uh, looks uh, bad and difficult to defend at the moment. Um, so, I mean, I think it's it's definitely the case that um, a lot of Western governments and uh, a, a lot of countries not currently in NATO uh, will you know, be joining in a, in a, a, a sort of campaign to use this war to argue for a stronger uh, NATO mm -hmm. and stronger Western military spending. Although, of course, it should also be said that, you know, despite the claimed um, aims of Putin's war effort to so-called denazification or demilitarization of Ukraine, uh, his actions completely play into their hands, and it's not hard to see why uh, those those arguments for um, for a stronger NATO are going to be harder for the left to resist. Mm -hmm. uh, and indeed, we're also seeing not only do the argument become more difficult, but but actually, like in parties like uh, the Labour Party in Britain, there's that you know a kind of clamp down on uh, on those who dissent. Um, yeah against that that kind of line against that um so i think it's a difficult position for the left because um indeed we don't want to be seen to be in any way excusing uh putin's actions or its kind of logic but at the same time there will be this kind of pressure to join in a, a bandwagon uh for things like uh, in, you know for example I, I live in berlin in germany and currently the social democrat-led government has announced um you know 100 billion euro right um, defense budget, which of course isn't actually going to help Ukraine or really solve that situation, uh, but but forms part of the need to be seen to do something. Yeah, uh, yeah. I I, I want to um, pause on this kind of question of the need to do something or what it is that that we should be doing, right? Because as the invasion kind of goes on, um, there's really no clear end or resolution in sight yet, and we also now have a pretty serious refugee crisis mounting, and. In response to that, it seems like a lot of uh, politicians and commentators are now calling for the West to establish a no-fly zone over Ukraine. Um, why is this not the best idea? Well, the idea of a no-fly zone is senseless because it's just a euphemism for a declaration of war on Russia. Uh, it's not just like you know putting uh, something in the sky to stop the planes going. You know, some mm -hmm. people think, oh, it's something like, oh, we're going to like use you know, we're going to like jam and the, the radar or something. No, I mean, like, no, it, it means shooting down Russian planes. Right. And so while the idea of no fly zone um, gained ground in wars like uh, in Yugoslavia and, and Libya and so on, and, and, and uh, some culture in the Syrian case, uh, that was with regard to states which are just immensely weaker uh, than Russia is. And uh, I think, you know, of course, one could say that if Russia in turn escalated in reply, then that would be their fault, not ours. But it's really not worth having the moral high ground if we're in a, a you know a nuclear exchange in which mm -hmm. we'd uh, all or large, very many millions of us would be killed. I mean, I, I think one thing I'd say about the no-fly zone, no-fly zone discussion is a lot of the people calling for it or calling for a debate around it. Um, know that it won't happen, so are yeah. uh, using the discussion in order to strike a, a sort of tough uh, posture. So if you look at people like, say, the Labour leader in Britain, Keir Starmer, who said it should be discussed, mm -hmm. or the Scottish uh, First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, uh, and indeed, of course, even uh, Vladimir Zelensky, I think, is yeah. calling for a no-fly zone. But I, I, I find it, of course, in a certain light for Ukraine to win the war militarily, it makes sense to try and internationalize the conflict, but I would suspect uh, that the reason for calling for the no-fly zone is that it just generally serves as pressure for for the West to give uh, Ukraine more help. Uh, but certainly, it's a very bad idea, and I think its its currency kind of reflects the idea that a lot of people in the in in the West think that there's a terrible crimes and disasters going on in the world, and we can stop it. We can right. press a button and make it stop, and that is not true. And indeed, I think we need to understand as well, it, in a world of, you know, this, this conflict partly represents a sort of decline of, uh, decline of Russia, certainly in its sort of near backyard, but also in a certain sense, a, a decline of that kind of unipolar uh, you know, the United States as, as leader of the world kind of thing. And I think we're going to see more conflicts of this type 
as other powers also you know india and, and china and so on become relatively more more significant and uh, indeed we can't just uh, it might sound good to press the stop button but it's something we really can't do Right. So um, going now to the to what kinds of solutions um, might be more productive, uh, you you had a great discussion in Jacobin recently with the Ukrainian scholar Alexander Kravchuk, uh, and it's about Ukraine's outstanding public debt. And uh, both of you sort of argue that canceling that debt would be a good way to help Ukraine right now. Um, I, you know, over the last few weeks, we've heard a lot of talk about, like, how can we help Ukraine? And we actually had Bronko Marchetich on the show last week to talk about some other solutions. Uh, but this was the first I heard of, you know, this idea to cancel uh, Ukraine's debt. So can you talk a little bit about that and how that would help? Yeah, I mean, um, even in the conflict that's been going on since 2014, uh, the Ukrainian state has resorted to uh, ever larger uh, borrowing from uh, the European Commission, the World Bank and the IMF. Uh, and its public debt is now so high that even before, you know, the fighting started a couple of weeks ago or, you know, the, the invasion happened a couple of weeks ago, um, Ukraine was spending uh, over 8% of its state budget on just on servicing uh, debt. So even before this invasion um, you know, it was spending an inordinate amount on 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 its uh, debt interest and so on, uh, but also these debts were conditional uh, on um, structural reforms, reducing the pensions bill, cutting back the welfare state, making a better business environment, and so on. So, what Alexander Kravchuk uh, talks about in the in the uh, interview, he's a Ukrainian economist, mm -hmm. is really that in if we want to help Ukraine then we should be cancelling the debt and the aid offered by other countries should be unconditional and the you know whatever international funding there is to help rebuild the ukrainian uh, economy that should be something that ukrainians themselves control of course that won't save ukraine uh, now but it's uh, important also if we think of this not just as like a conflict that is you know going on for for weeks and months, but but in the longer term, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I should say as well, it's also important when we think, you know, say Josep Borrell of the European uh, Commission uh, has, you know, he predicted that there could be um, as many as five million uh, refugees from the Ukraine conflict, uh, and it's very important as well that our response is based on providing, um, you know, proper. Um, living conditions, proper rights, proper immigration status, and so on for those people fleeing the conflict. Of course, it's true that in other recent wars that hasn't been provided. Right. I don't think that's a reason for the left to not take that demand up now, just to <laughs> right. you know, point to hypocrisy. I mean, right. and, and also, of course, there are countries, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm uh, British and Britain isn't um, taking uh, Ukrainian refugees or has only taken 50 so far. Right. All right. Well, David, I want to uh, again shout out uh, Jacobin's coverage of the Ukraine situation. Um, all of you should check out the articles that David has been writing and also commissioning for the site on this topic. Uh, again, David Broder, thank you for your time. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. All right. Uh, like I said, I will be making um, some of my own comments about uh, uh, new polling on the economy that has recently come out. Uh, but first, a message from our sponsor, Verso Books. Join the Verso Book Club and get every new ebook that Verso publishes every month, as well as one to three books in the mail. All Verso Book Club members also get 50% off everything on the website. The Comrade tier is only $20 a month for your first three months, and if you join in March, you'll get these books. Feminism or Death, How the Women's Movement Can Save the Planet by Francois Deobon, a new edition of a classic work of French feminist theory. Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump by Assad Haider, a challenge to the way we understand the politics of race and the history of anti-racist struggle. The Politics of Immunity, Security and the Policing of Bodies by Mark Neocleus, an intellectual history that exposes the politics underpinning the way immunity is imagined. And The Benjamin Files by Frederick Jameson, the paperback edition of this comprehensive exploration of all of Benjamin's major works. Become a member today at versobooks.com. All right. So uh, just a reminder that we do have Crystal Ball coming up in just a couple minutes. Um, I'm sure you guys are interested in what she has to say. I'm very excited to speak with her. Uh, but first, uh, my comments. So in case you haven't heard, the economy is booming right now. 
Here's what President Joe Biden had to say about it last week in his State of the Union address. We created jobs, lots of jobs. In fact, our economy created over 6.5 million new jobs just last year. More jobs in one year than ever before in the history of the United States of America. The economy grew at a rate of 5.7 last year, the strongest growth rate in 40 years. And the first step in bringing fundamental change to our economy that hasn't worked for working people in this nation for too long. So there's just one problem. Despite the glowing numbers, plenty of voters still think the economy is doing terribly. Poll after poll has indicated that an overwhelming majority of the American public thinks the economy right now is bad and only about to get worse. We canvassed nearly 2,000 voters in late December, and nearly three-quarters said the economy isn't good, and half said it will get worse. In an environment with little common ground between political parties, both Democrats and Republicans said rising inflation continues to hurt the recovery. 74 percent of Biden voters, 96 percent of Trump voters say the price of everyday goods is worse than a year ago. And when asked which expenses are rising that give them concern, respondents said groceries, gas, health care and everything. And they don't see it getting better anytime soon. 53 percent of respondents say prices will stay high for a long time. And a quarter say current sticker prices are here to stay. An outlook that could be costly at the polls this November. So the tension between how the economy is doing on paper and how the majority of Americans feel about it has left some experts scratching their heads. For instance, New York Times columnist Paul Krugman recently wrote, quote, there's a huge disconnect between economic reality, which is mixed, inflation is a big concern, but job growth has been terrific, and public perceptions, which are weirdly dismal. Others have chalked up the public's negative perception of the current economy to right-wing propaganda. Last week, Boston College professor Heather Cox Richardson tweeted, We are in the greatest economic recovery since World War II. Maybe the issue is not Biden, but right-wing disinformation and those who amplify it. So Krugman and Richardson are right that the economy is good in the sense that GDP has risen, millions of new jobs have opened up, and unemployment has dropped since Biden took office. It's also true that wages have gone up across several sectors over the last year thanks to a tight labor market. So what's going on here? Why does everyone think the economy is doing so badly? Perhaps it's because the economy is literally engineered to deliver most of its spoils to the capitalist class and leave everyone else with crumbs. Take the problem of inflation and price hikes. Gas, for instance, is now over $4 a gallon in 21 states in Washington, D.C., and last month, global food prices hit a record high. What these increased costs mean is that inflation has essentially erased any wage increases that the average worker has seen over the last year. Inflation is now at a 40-year high and could climb higher with spiking energy and grain prices from the war in Ukraine. The consumer price index surged 7.5% in one year with price hikes for necessities like food, rent, and electricity leading the way. A typical American family is now spending an estimated $250 more a month for the same goods and services that they were paying for a year ago. Wages are rising for many workers, but taking into account inflation and spending power, the so-called real wage for hourly workers has dropped 1.7% in a year, according to the Labor Department. The good news is that unemployment is at a low 4% and more than 6 million jobs have been added since President Biden took office. But we're still nearly 3 million jobs short of where we were pre-pandemic. Back in January, the New York Times reported that only 17% of workers said they had received raises that kept up with inflation. And according to the Wall Street Journal, in February, average hourly earnings rose by only one cent, which means that inflation is continuing to outstrip wage growth. Then there's the issue of what kinds of jobs are being added to the economy. We know from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that most of the job creation is happening in leisure and hospitality, a.k.a. the notoriously low-wage service sector. CNBC has also noted that over a third of all jobs created in professional and business services in February were temp jobs. In other words, while it might be true that there are a ton of new jobs, most of these jobs appear to be bad ones. And sure, starting wages might be a little higher today than they were in the past, but the service sector is still plagued by little to no job security, few benefits like paid leave, and very unstable scheduling. 
In fact, a recent study conducted by Harvard University's SHIFT project found that there was essentially no improvement in service workers' schedules from before the pandemic through 2021. The researchers wrote in their report, despite rhetoric promising frontline workers more respect and better conditions, unpredictable schedules remained the status quo during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, according to their report, nearly two-thirds of service sector workers received less than two weeks' notice of their work schedules, 57% experienced last-minute changes to scheduled shifts, and 34% had to work a clopening, that is, back-to-back closing and opening shifts. As researcher Elaine Zundel put it, these bad schedules are related to poor well-being, economic insecurity, and just generally a lot of stress and anxiety because folks can't plan their future. So when these are the main types of jobs being created in our current booming economy, is it any wonder that people are not more excited about the jobs numbers? Yes, it's true, as Paul Krugman noted, that, quote, anyone who walks around U.S. cities can see the proliferation of help wanted signs. But you might also notice that most of these signs are in front of places like fast food restaurants, retail outlets and assisted living facilities. And even apart from jobs, there are other reasons people might not feel as cheery as Krugman about the state of the economy. Let's not forget that the expiration of the expanded child tax credit back at the end of December meant that at the start of this year, an estimated 3.7 million children fell back into poverty. Just like many experts and advocates warned, more families struggled financially last month. It is the first month they went without early child tax credit payments. Now, the Center on Poverty and Social Policy at Columbia University has been tracking the program's impact from the beginning. It found between July and December last year, nearly 4 million children were kept from poverty, a reduction of 30%. Then, last month, it spiked, a 41% increase, sending the exact same number of children into poverty with families of color taking the hardest hit. Health experts say this is more than an economic crisis. Children growing up in poverty are less likely to, to, to stay in school, less likely to graduate school. They're going to make less money uh, in the future. And the stress of living on poverty is a major factor in terms of mental health. Health and family advocates are calling for a permanent expansion of the expanded child tax credit. They say it could be a centerpiece in addressing persistent health and economic inequalities. According to a new survey from the Census Bureau, the end of the expanded CTC also means that more than a third of families with children in the U.S. are now struggling to pay bills and cover other basic household costs. So given that more kids are in poverty, service jobs still suck, and inflation has has erased essentially all wage increases for workers, I don't think it's actually that shocking that so many Americans are pessimistic about the economy right now. We should also keep in mind that this much-celebrated economic boom is unfolding in the larger context of the last several decades of economic gains going primarily to the top 1% of income earners and basically no one else. Even during the so-called recovery period after the Great Recession between 2009 and 2013, the top 1% captured over 85% of total income growth. Now, that said, we do have some new data that shows that in 2021, for the first time in quite a long time, the incomes of the bottom 50% actually grew at a faster pace than the incomes of the rich, thanks again to a slight wage bump and checks from the CTC. But one year alone can't make up for, let alone reverse, 40 years of widening economic inequality or the replacement of stable middle-income jobs with an explosion of low-wage work. This is still not an economy that works well for the vast majority of Americans. And finally, everyone who's concerned that the economic situation is only going to get worse in the near future is probably right. The Federal Reserve has already said that it plans to raise interest rates at its meeting later this month, which is another way of saying it's planning on nudging the economy toward a recession in order to, quote, cool it off. So what does this mean for the average American? You know, when you raise the interest rate at the Fed, typically other interest rates go up. Uh, So what we'll be seeing when they go to move it up a quarter percentage point in that meeting coming up in about two weeks is you'll see borrowing costs for Americans going up. Uh, That includes certain mortgages. That includes auto loans. uh, That includes certain credit cards. Uh, So we will see those go up uh, across the board uh, as they do this. With that said, though, the whole idea of raising interest rates is to put downward pressure on 
on inflation. Uh, and so that is the goal across the board. We know inflation is up 7.5 percent over the past year, uh, and that has hit Americans across the board hard, in particular low-income Americans. Okay, so on the one hand, mortgages, car payments, and credit card rates might go up, but inflation will go down. Is that a fair trade-off? Well, no, it isn't, because an interest rate hike designed to drive down inflation will almost certainly also drive down wages and employment. As the economist James K. Galbraith recently put it, quote, this is the, this is the essence of inflation in a services economy. Energy and most goods prices are set worldwide, so service wages are the only part of the price structure that the Fed's new policy can directly affect. And the only way the policy can work, eventually, is by making working Americans desperate. So let's go back to the original question of whether the economy is actually good right now. Again, in some ways it is. Businesses are seeing some of the highest profits and profit margins that they have since the 1950s. And unlike workers' wages, gains in corporate profits have vastly outpaced both inflation and whatever meager pay raises companies have given their employees. But of course, this is not very helpful to your average working person, which is probably why most people aren't cheering the historic economic recovery, even if it looks excellent on paper. In the end, perhaps the question shouldn't be, is the economy good right now? But instead, who is the economy actually benefiting? All right. Well, obviously, we will continue to hear more about the economy and we'll see what happens with inflation and wages uh, when the Fed raises interest rates. As, as I said, they have said they plan to do at their March meeting, which I believe is next week. So there'll definitely there'll definitely be more of that to come uh, in in the future. Uh, but on the subject of economic inequality and, of course, the various shortcomings of the mainstream media, uh, I want to go ahead and welcome our next guest, Crystal Ball. You, of course, know her from the show's Breaking Points and, of course, K Crystal Kyle and Friends. She's also the author with Sagar and Jetty of the book The Populist's Guide to 2020. Uh, Crystal, it's really good to see you. Great to be with you. I'm a big fan of you guys' show. I oh, watch all the time, so I'm honored to get to join you. So, Crystal, I really wanted to have you on to talk broadly about um, this ongoing and arguably worsening problem of working people in the U.S. just becoming more and more alienated and detached from the political process. Yeah. And of course, that's like a huge umbrella and there's a lot to cover under that. But I want to start with the media question, because you actually came on The Jacobin Show um, over a year ago. Uh, if memory serves, you and Kyle Kalinske had just launched Crystal Kyle and Friends. And then, of course, a few months after that, you and Sagar went rogue from the hill and you watched Breaking Points. Uh, and, you know, both of these shows have been like wildly successful. And I also want to put that in the context of the last year or so, sort of seeing this explosion of like independent newsletters, Substacks, obviously, you know, YouTube shows and podcasts and so forth. So I, I guess the question, the, the first question for you is, given that we now kind of have a robust, if still informal collection of independent news sources, do you think that independent media is starting to become a force that can rival traditional media? Um, we're not there yet, yeah. but I do think that there are a lot of hopeful signs. And so I'm glad you start with this question because it is actually a hopeful place to begin. Um, you now have a growing ecosystem. You have, you know, one of the things we try to do at Breaking Points that we've been doing a lot lately is bringing people in who, you know, have their own thing, but that we can help promote. So Matt Stoller with his um, big Substack newsletter on uh, antitrust and monopoly is one mm -hmm. example of that. There's a fantastic new YouTuber named James Lee, 5149, who does incredible breakdowns. He's got one posting for us this week on the private equity industry. So I do think that there is a lot that's hopeful there. And at the same time, I think there's a giant target on the back of independent media creators for a variety of reasons, not least of which I think when Joe Rogan went to Spotify and mm -hmm. they paid him $100 million or $200 million, mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how big the package was, there was suddenly this big capitalist awakening of like, oh, this is not just people, you know, doing this little side thing and it's completely irrelevant. There's big money at stake here and gigantic audiences and gigantic influence. Mm -hmm. So I think that was kind of an eye-opening moment for the capitalists. And then you also have, of course, this whole narrative and movement towards 
there are things that are happening in the country that we don't like. So instead of engaging with those things or trying to win the debate or trying to organize to better things, we're going to try to censor, we're going to try to clamp down, we're going to try to control the conversation. And that obviously is a direct threat to independent media. Um, And then you have, you know, you have big players like CNN trying to get into sort of like their own independent media game, quote unquote, (laughs) with their streaming efforts, which are doomed to fail because they've brought on the same boring, same old, same old talent that no one is interested in hearing from with the same corporate mentality and perspective that they've had everywhere else. But now they see themselves as sort of competitors in the space. So again, that means the knives are out. So at the one on the one hand, just to kind of like sum up that rather long answer, on the one hand, I think there's never been more promise. I think there's never been more space. Um, I think there's never been more platforms and more ability and more hunger and desire and just mm-hmm. like, you know, thinking in market, market terms, there's a massive hunger for uh, more independent voices and a different perspective. But I also think there's a gigantic threat coming yeah. from established players. I I I want to build off of that because, you know, one major theme of Breaking Points, uh, which I love, is I really feel like you guys de-emphasize culture wars and political polarization. And what I mean by that is not that you, you know, steer away from controversial topics or like don't cover certain things, but you make very clear that so many of the culture war battles that we're seeing today are um, distractions from the massive chasm between the rich and everybody else and often by design. So uh, I guess the question is like, how do we move beyond culture wars when obviously both major parties uh, and the mainstream media are constantly adding fuel to the fire? And then maybe specifically, do you see an opportunity for the left in particular to kind of stake out like an alternative political position that sidesteps some of these culture wars? Yeah. So this is something that I really do think a lot about, because like you said, you don't want to avoid things that are important. Um, I don't want people to think that culture is irrelevant, that I don't care about these issues, that they don't matter. What I try to steer clear of is the culture war fights that aren't actually important, which are just about having a fight, (laughs) you know, and we have a lot of those, right? Mm -hmm. So um, in terms of, you know, where are the, where are the hopeful signs or how do we build on that? Or how do we get to this place that culture wars are so central? I think you have to start from the the place of when our politics fail to deliver basic material security on like an obvious level for the vast majority of people, of course, they're going to give up on either of the political parties delivering for them in that way. Yeah. So in the you know Reagan era and in the neoliberal era with material politics sort of like off the table in terms of making meaningful gains, well, yeah, it makes sense that people would gravitate towards these culture, cultural signaling reasons for their vote, or they would just opt out entirely. Mm-hmm. So if you don't expect a politician to actually better your material condition, then you're like, okay, well, are they going to at least signal they're sort of like on my team in the culture wars? Right. And so that's how I think we've ended up in this place. I think the most obvious answer, and again, a hopeful sign that we have right now is in a reinvigorated labor movement. I'm actually, mm-hmm. you can't see it, but I'm wearing my Starbucks oh, United yeah. t-shirt. <laughs> Amazing. Right now, they just won three more elections today. That yeah. is, you can't, I mean, look, it's it feels small in a certain sense, but Starbucks had never had uh, an American store, a right. US store unionized. Right. right. And now you've got, six and you've got elections across the country that are scheduled in a tidal wave and you've got over a hundred, I think. Yes. And you've got votes coming up at two, no, three Amazon um, centers, mm-hmm. two on Staten Island and then the redo in Bessemer, Alabama. I mean, that's a massive, massive shift, right. especially when you put that in the context of, you know, the red for ed teacher wave and you see it as sort of like, you know, a movement that's been building. Yes, it was interrupted by the pandemic, but now it's coming back. If you're going to have a class centric politics that truly involves a multiracial working class, it Mm -hmm. has to start with the labor movement. So, um, you know, I really think that part of looking back and this is putting another another piece here, but looking back at what happened with the Sanders campaign and why some of the voters that we hoped those disengaged working class voters that we hoped would show up didn't ultimately show up is because we needed 
the time of building the labor movement, building that solidarity and building that sort of foundation, like the, the energy we saw at the John Deere strike mm-hmm. in able to convince people that there was something for them to gain materially in, you know, electoral politics. So that's kind of how I'm looking at the landscape right now. Yeah. Um, you, you really just touched on this, but I, I want to ask you now, um, we know that the the American working class, uh, much like the working class, you know, across the rest of the world, is unfortunately uh, very alienated and uh, increasingly depoliticized. Um, and and as you said, it's no wonder when, especially in this country, we have two parties that don't represent the interests of the working class at all. This also, of course, is happening in kind of the context of constant DC chatter and you know just like politics sort of diffusely floating around in the air. But we don't really have any working class institutions at this point, other than as, as you just mentioned, the labor movement. So um, again, like I said, you sort of touched on this, but what do you see as the root cause of this working class alienation? Ooh, it is a, a really deep question. I mean, yeah. I do think a lot of it is just, um, you know, the Republicans have always been the party, the rich, when you have the Bill Clinton era come along and he embraces basically like, I'm going to be, you know, basically like them and sort of like shave off some of the rough edges. And in some places, I'm going to go even further than them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's when you see the um, you see the initial erosion of the, the working class. At first, it's the white working class that shifts away from the Democratic Party. And so there was this intentional decision that, hey, we're going to these this labor union movement, these working class people, like that's the past. The future is these upwardly mobile office workers and professionals. And hey, by the way, we want to be able to play in a game where we can take the corporate money too. And so it's really when you have um, the complete death of the New Deal era and you have the, you know, the birth of the, the Reagan era and the neoliberal era on the Democratic side that you get full class dealignment and mm-hmm. continued disengagement from politics and everything collapsing down to these culture wars, which, you know, for the parties, for the two major parties, the people that um, run those parties, it's a good deal. They don't have to mm-hmm. do anything. You know, I mean, the Republicans, this election cycle, they're openly admitting they're not running on an agenda. Right, All, right. I mean, they're upfront about it. Like, how brazen is that? And in right. some ways, it's just honest because- mm-hmm. The truth of the matter is, it's probably smart electoral strategy for them. They just say, hey, we're, we're not that. We know you hate those guys. We're, diff- we're, we're not them. So show up and right. vote for us. Their base is energized. The Democrats are kind of depressed because Biden hasn't been what they wanted him to be. Mm-hmm. And so, um, so, yeah, it just collapses down to a politics of, of nothing. Right. You don't have to promise anything. You don't have to deliver anything. All you have to do is, you know, if you're a Democrat, like Neil and Kente Cloth, and if you're a Republican, own the libs and right, you're good right. to go. You know, right. you're going to. And and even when they lose, like they don't really lose, at least for the people who are in power. You mm-hmm. know, there were there was a lot of money made and a lot of books sold and yep. a lot of fame gained during the Trump years. They were perfectly fine being in opposition. So um, they want to win, but they only want to win if they can do it in the way that's comfortable for them and comfortable for their the donor class. Right. And as you pointed out, when they lose, they still kind of win. So yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. exactly right. So I, I definitely agree with you that there do seem to be some, you know, reasons for hope or some bright spots that are kind of percolating in the in, in our political environment right now. But something I've been thinking about is since, you know, the end of Bernie's back to back bids for the presidency, um, I, I think something that's that the left has really struggled with is breaking out of kind of urban centers. Uh, mm. So, you know, if you look at if you look at like um, New York or, you know, San Francisco, um, those cities have vibrant DSA chapters that are doing really impressive work. Um, but at the same time, these are places that are sort of deeply concentrated, again, in cities and on the coasts. Uh, the left, you know, for a long time has been struggling to kind of break through and appeal to rural voters. Um, why do you think that is? And and do you think that can be changed? I do think it can be changed, but yeah. I think it's it's a difficult project and it's a long-term project and it definitely has to do with the reinvigorated labor movement. You know, the sort mm-hmm. of things we saw with the teachers movement, with the John Deere strike where you had yeah. true solidarity across all kinds of ideological divides and people actually working on a project together that was tangible and was material. And I don't think we can deny that 
part of the collapse in support for anything left of center, let alone actual leftism, is because of this um, instinct towards subtraction rather than addition. And what Mm -hmm. I mean by that is, you know, the most energy oftentimes on um, the broad left today is about, you know, judging whether people are worthy human beings, whether you can associate with them, whether you can quote unquote platform them, whether they Mm -hmm. deserve a voice in polite society. And so if you're constantly sending out the message to people that you that may not be 100% with you or even 80% with you, but, you know, their minds could be open, they could be with you on some key issues. If you're just constantly putting out the message, like, we hate you, we have contempt for you, we think you're wrong, we think you're evil, we think you're racist, we think you're bad. Yeah, they're not going to vote for you, they're not going <laughs> right. to support you, they're not going to come to you, show up to your meetings. Right. Um. So I think this loss of it's almost like it's not a serious project anymore. People are just in there playing for their own personal clout for what can be gained from, you know, naming and shaming some other person as not left enough or not phrasing, you know, not using the right language on a certain issue. That's where the sort of fame and notoriety, I guess, comes from. So that's not a serious project of political change. That's about like personal brand building versus any kind of solidarity or collective action it's poisonous to any sort of solidarity or collective action so that's that's to me the big obstacle i mean on economic issues and even on a lot of cultural issues um the left is popular you know people want to have health care they want to have guaranteed health care they want to have good public education Mm -hmm. they want to have high wages they want to more more people than ever you know before it's like record high numbers for support for unions you know, the issues aren't the problem. It's that people get the sense that we don't want you in the club, that you don't belong. And I, you know, more than any, you know, I know there's all this debate about like defund the police and all this stuff. And I do think that that rhetoric is off-putting, but I think that's Mm -hmm. so far from the biggest problem. (laughs) Yeah, there's no, you know, there's very few politicians who aren't there even embracing that rhetoric. The one other thing that I want to say, because a lot of times, this move towards, you know, this kind of like, I hate the term cancel culture, but like that (laughs) move towards censorship is oftentimes sort of pinned on the left Mm -hmm. and the focus on narrow identity issues versus a broader politics that has more universalism that it, you know, can build solidarity. I mean, this really came from the neoliberals. This was like, you know, Bernie Sanders was derided as a racist yeah. for running on a universalist platform and, you know, told he was horrible and the whole Bernie bro thing and his toxic right. supporters and all of that. So that direction of politics really d- didn't actually, it wasn't birthed by the left, the actual left. This right. came from exactly. liberals who wanted to signal their virtue, but not actually deliver for people. Yeah. I think something that's maybe related or related to the question of kind of uh, like political identity or partisan identity is Mm -hmm. something that we've covered on the show before. And I know you and Sagar have as well, is the fact that today more voters identify as independents rather than Democrats or Republicans. Um, And again, like it's not hard to see why, uh, but obviously that is kind of a problem when we're still, you know, locked in a two party system. Mm -hmm. So um, and especially working class voters say that they're turned off by both parties. Right. Yeah. So um, I guess, like, like, do you see a path for sort of moving beyond partisan politics? No. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) I was kind of hoping you would have like... (laughs) I wish I did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sucks that the Democrats are the only game in town, but I... (laughs) Well, I just look at, I'm I'm both an idealist, you know, and I believe in, I, I truly do believe in the people of this country, even though... Yeah, this is a little bit of a tangent, but like with Ukraine, the public support is like all in favor of a fly zone and all these things Mm. that I think are terrifying and awful. But you can you can also see like the humanity of the American people who are like watching the suffering and just trying to figure like, what can we do? We want to do something. And even Mm -hmm. being willing, like, it's like 75% of the country's like, we'll pay higher gas prices if it helps. (laughs) Right. I mean, that's that's really something, you know. So I am an idealist and I believe in that. Um but I just think that if we look 
on the practical side at past history, what's come closest to actually working has been um, the Bernie Sanders campaigns. Mm -hmm. You can also see a model in, um, you know, on the other side of the aisle for sort of hijacking a major political party and using it towards your ends, both with the Tea Party and with Trump, who ends up being the guy that just carries the water for Paul Ryan and like the Cokes and (laughs) doing all the, but they didn't know that was going to be the direction. It didn't have to be the direction. It's just, he's such a, you know, empty piece of crap. But um, so that, that has more promise to me, even as I recognize that there's massive barriers, the media being one, the party cartel, I mean, the way that they can rig the system, those are all very real things. I'm not saying it's a piece of cake. Mm -hmm. But when I look in comparison to, you know, even the best performance of third parties right now, it's, it's not even close. So, um, so yeah, I think if you just kind of logically evaluate the evidence, you have to say that the best you can do right now is to throw your energy into any little green shoots in the labor movement and try to work to, you know, to change the democratic party into something that actually, um, actually benefits working class people. And I think I've been thinking about this lately too, just from a like political messaging perspective. Mm-hmm. I think the way to pitch this is like a reclamation of the Democratic Party. Like they've mm-hmm. gone astray. And mm-hmm. we need, like they used to be about the broad working class and about labor right. unions. And, you know, that used to be where they planted their flag and they've gone astray. So this is a movement to bring them back to a more like accurate reflection of what they're supposed to be about mm-hmm. versus we're going to do something totally crazy and totally new that you've never seen before because that does freak people out. And I think if you do that, you know, a lot of those independent voters that you're thinking of people that I've, that I know that I've spent a lot of time with that are my close friends and um, places I've, I've lived like rural Virginia and Kentucky Mm -hmm. and um, the industrial Midwest in Ohio, they, they would respond to that message. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's part of why Bernie had so much traction um, with working class voters in 2016 in particular, white working class voters in 2016 in particular is because they were like, oh, you don't like the Democratic Party. We don't like the Democratic Party either. (laughs) And some of us used to be that. And so we have like a kinship there. So I do think that there's a, a, you know, sort of messaging opportunity there. But yeah, it's a sad state of affairs. But I think that's the way we have to approach things. It's the most likely to to be successful. And I would be yeah. delighted to be proved wrong on that front. You know, I'm not like down on third party efforts. I think right. they're valuable. I think they matter. I think they're extremely helpful as well as part of the political landscape. I just practically don't think it's the most likely direction for change. Right. So I have uh, just one last question for you, and I kind of think I know what you're going to say, but I have to okay. ask it anyway. Um, <laughs> All right. so, so you obviously, as, as you just said, you've worked as a journalist, you've lived in uh, many different places, um, you've also worked as a political strategist, uh, and um, actually for anyone who doesn't know, you campaigned for public office at one point. I so- did. So the the final question is, given all of that, where do you see the most promise for rebuilding a working class movement in the U.S. or like a broadly populist movement? Uh, Where does the most potential seem to lie right now? Do you mean in terms of geographic regions? You mean in terms of... I I didn't, but if you have thoughts on that... You you don't mean like literally what place in the country is the hotbed Like what state and city... Where do we need to go? I mean, uh, again, if you have thoughts on that, I I, I would love to know. But uh, I mean, but just, very, but just generally, I'm very partial to Kentucky. I yeah, have a lot yeah, of, of loyalty to Kentucky, so we'll yeah. we'll be hopeful for the the future of Kentucky and they're mm-hmm. getting their you know populist spread back. Um, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think look, the obvious answer is is labor, and mm-hmm. not just with the efforts to organize Starbucks and Amazon, but you really do see this sea change coming out of the pandemic of people um, across classes rethinking their lives and the balance they want to strike and what actually matters. And, you know, you got a little white collar rebellion going on right now. Right. People being like, I'm not coming back to the office. Like, I'll leave my job. Good luck finding someone else. I'm, I'm happy working remote or coming in a couple days a week or mm-hmm. I've moved out of the city. And <laughs> I'm living somewhere that I can actually afford a home in. And so, sorry, you're just going to have to deal with that now. 
Um, now the fear is that that only those gains only stay with the white collar workers, which is often the right. case. Right. But um, you know, you do see these working class movements and that's the only way, you know, yeah. I mean, we're so, the media is so committed to convincing us that we're, we're enemies that if you're, you know, if you're living in a city, the person in rural America is your enemy, or if you're in rural America, the person in the city is your enemy. If you're a Democrat, the Republicans are your enemy. I mean, you know, if you're, uh, it, it's just, it's just this, sort of commercialization of hate and division. Mm -hmm. I don't want to sound hokey. Like there are a lot of real divides and there's, we should have a divisive politics, but the divide's got to be in the right place. So the only way to overcome that is to actually directly exist with and work with people who are different from you on meaningful projects. And the only space that that really happens in a way that is multiracial and (laughs) multi-ideological is, you know, on the shop floor and in the union hall. So I think that's, I think that's the direction we have to push in. The numbers are really encouraging in terms of how people are feeling about the labor movement. There's obviously, you know, this, it's obvious to everyone that neoliberalism has failed. It's just a question of what's going to replace it. So the same time that the landscape feels kind of like grim and hopeless, I think things can change the landscape can shift in an instant in a way that you can never contemplate. And anyone who's lived through the past couple of years, I think has to recognize that. Well said. All right, Crystal, thank you so much. You've been very generous with your time. Um, I'm sure everybody who's watching the show is subscribed to breaking points. If not do that immediately. It's the best <laughs> new show out there right no, now. Thank you. Crystal Kyle and friends, of course, is also great. Um, you've had on Boscar and I believe like a few Jacobin mm-hmm. Jacobin people. So I encourage everybody to check that out as well. Um, all right. Thank you so much, Crystal. Thank you, Jen. I really enjoy your work. I think you're such a um, just a really insightful thinker and the monologues you put together are always so on point. So oh, thanks for spending thank you, some Crystal. time with me. <laughs> thanks. All right. Um, Well, like I said, I think and hope that everybody is already watching Breaking Points and listening to Crystal Kyle and friends. Um, On that note, I am going to wrap up for tonight and we will see you next week. 